Hey, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. I'm Paul Gillette, got Chris Palomares, and of course, James Lincoln. As we begin this, be aware that we had an equipment malfunction at the very beginning, so as the first few seconds of this conversation with Chris and I did not get recorded. We're talking about the Atherin release of Ready to Run SDT40-2 motorized frame sets. That's what this conversation deals with and how they approached it. You were saying that one of the the options was to to get this free clear look looking through the lower uh, air intakes the grills was how would you use a front truck back there without a similar problem on the gear tower well the front truck is if if you face two front trucks facing gear tower forward okay and when you have two front trucks with the gear tower facing forward, it kind of puts the traction motor details closer to the, the rear coupler, which is the wrong side for them to be on. So what you need to do is cut off those traction motor details, flip around the side frames, and attach the traction motor details between the tank and the truck. Now, yes, there is something about the about the the center axles slightly offset so yeah you you'll have to adjust that a little bit but it can it can be adjusted and as as far as i was concerned you know just trying this out that wasn't my first concern my first concern was just trying to move that gear tower forward which i was able to do successfully by using two front trucks and modifying the rear truck to kind of be a you know, a rear truck, but with all the components on the right side, or I should say the correct side between the tank and the truck. Uh, that, that really, that, that changed the whole thing around because at that point you could see through the rear grills, you could have all wheel pickup, all wheel drive. And it, it was just a solid, good running locomotive that looked good. I look better. Um, fast forward from those, uh, experiences designing that, that approach, I took those experiences to Athern when this opportunity came up to adjust the, the SD40 T-2 and the SD45 T-2 upgrade them to sound because you have to redo the underframe anyway. Everybody was, when I showed them the trick, everybody was so excited that what you could yield from that, mm-hmm. it was just like without saying, well, okay, well, well, we'll have to do a new gearbox housing, but, you know, all this, it's all common components. So, you know, servicing that gearbox is not going to be a problem. Uh, gears axle gears all that stuff it's all it's all the same stuff um just the overall look of that locomotive was just so much more enhanced than what we've been able to achieve up until this point so major engineering um i'd say 
enhancement, just being able to, to start fresh with the tunnel motor and have some fresh ideas um, as a basis to approach the, the problem. And then adding it by, you know, kind of sidestep with this, you know, in tandem with being able to adjust the, just how the mechanism appears, uh, we've been able to also benefit from SugarCube speakers. And that's something that's not widely adopted yet on, in, in the market. So this is going to have, the, the underframe is going to have the ability to have LEDs with the, the new 21-pin NEM motherboard on it. Okay. It's all. It's also going to have. If you get the sound, uh, if you get the sound version, the the non-sound versions won't have it, but it's sound ready, so they'll have the housing, I believe, where you can drop in just the. It's a two. It's a twin sugar cube speaker configuration. Okay. Um. And just you're, you're going to get superior sound, superior performance, superior pulling power. LEDs, I mean, it is just the most current uh, mechanism for your locomotive. And the nice thing, too, is it fits the old blue box all the way back to the old blue box with uh, some minor fitting. So, and minor fitting, I mean, it's just like there's some strikers right by the coupler pocket on the back of the, the pilot. You just got to clip out with some clippers okay. and maybe uh, around the... Oh gosh, I'd say right behind the the cabinet behind the cab on the conductor side, right at the blower duct area. There's just okay. a little bit of of, of shaping you got to do, but it, that's it. I mean, other than that, you can drop it right on. So, okay, now the tunnels that I have mm -hmm. uh, on the forty twos, which were RTR. Right. They were in the their post twenty ten production. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure. Right. Because they were in the predominantly yellow and blue packaging. They had the uh, molded clear piece that captured the bottom and the top, and then mm -hmm. had the sleeve. So. Right. I've never really noticed on on the rear, maybe I just didn't look close enough that, you know, it never bothered me that I was seeing the, the worm gear cover and everything like that. Uh, all right, so now you've made that all better. Now, mm -hmm. when you're mounting the, the two sugar cubes in there, are you firing them down or firing them up? Uh, that's a question we will have to answer later on. Okay. I mean, I haven't seen that yet. Fire it down towards the open grill. Actually, it doesn't. Oh, okay. How come? It gets too many highs kind of leak out of it. I noticed that the locomotives tend to sound better if you seal off top fans and any sort of ports okay. from them because you know the whole thing has ports by the trucks 
Yes. What happens is I notice that when you have speakers firing up through the grills on the fans that you get a lot of really tinny highs. And as soon as you put your finger over that, you get you can actually hear the lows. Okay. So the the most ideal location for those speakers would be the firing up into the into the shell and then just sort of naturally letting the the shell reverberate. Okay, because on the the tunnels, the top uh, grill work and stuff, that's not open, right? That's not open. Okay, but your dynamic brake fans are open. Right, but you know, okay. also, also the areas by the trucks, those are ports too. Okay, the well, openings by the trucks. Mm-hmm. The the three sugar cube arrangements that I put in there. Uh, they're 13 or 18, but they've got the deeper housing. And yeah, I just nestled them up in the top and let them fire down. Some of the sound coming out through the frame and some coming out at the, uh, the openings. Uh, so yeah, firing down in that case is just really good. Now, so you're going to have LEDs in both the gyro light and the headlight and then the rear headlight, right? That's correct. Are you going, are you using surface mount? Are these going to be like 1.8, 1.5 millimeter or whatever? Well, Athern has developed their own proprietary solution for okay. LEDs. And we fashion surface mount, uh, the surface mount LED into the same footprint as a one and a half volt bulb okay so it's just a direct replacement for the the bulb if you pull one out you'll be like oh that's a bulb okay. it's actually an led with a lens attached to it okay so to to give it you know the ability to slide into the the headlight opening okay are you following the practice that you introduced on the sdp 40fs where the the bulb and everything is actually captured in the body and the connection is made by uh, a couple rub strips. My no. terminology. Okay. No, no. This is an RTR locomotive. So it's... Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's something that we'll be employing more on Genesis locomotives um, when able to. It's not something that we can due to everything the the nice thing about the sdp is it had a a wider body so that kind of allowed for you know more interesting and um reliable ways to to hook wires between the shell and you know the motherboard but that that's not always a you know available in every new model that we do that's okay now what's your timing on this well, the tunnel motors, I believe, should be coming in October or November. I'd have to okay. look at the website, but that is the current ETA. Uh, okay. So I, I'd say fall. The tunnel motors is fall. And then after that, the SD45 T-2s will, will be most likely summer in 2019. Okay. All right. And I've got, is that going to be a Genesis again? The first ones were. The, the 45 T-2. 
the 45P-2 has never been Genesis. It's always been RTR. And why right am now, I thinking it was just because I bought that good grief in 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Hot was an RTR. Belt Bicentennial. Yeah, that was an RTR okay. model. Okay, maybe I was just blown away because it was such a beautiful, highly detailed body. Well, that. yeah, and and quite honestly, the 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 state of Genesis, I'd say in two thousand four to two thousand nine, two thousand ten, is is the state of our RTR. So we took our top line and we made it our baseline. So. Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's provided a pretty good launch point with uh, the economy sound for a lot of people. That was like that was as much <laughs> I care to to know uh, as far as like getting used to a decoder. It's pretty simple to to program. The sound is really good. It's it's feature complete. One hundred percent has a good um, good amplifier on it and everything. Okay, motor control, all that. So. All right. The uh, is this the same uh, or improved on the the motor? Even though it's RTR, is it? Have you tweaked it in its uh, running ability, or has it been good enough in your opinion? Well, you know the RTR. The, the, the RTR motor has gone through a lot of changes since uh, two thousand four. Okay. A lot of changes and what you end up now with the RTR motor is a very stout motor that ex that can handle heavy load um, it performs well under DCC it draws a low amp it has a skew wound motor I mean these are all things that just were not present in the blue box motor so this thing has gone through a lot of changes in order to get it factory ready and factory equipped with with dcc and sound in the interim i have i think i've only got one tsunami 2 uh to redo with the speed tables mm -hmm. and yeah i took your advice and started importing them in and big time saver <laughs> <laughs> and i did <clears throat> Uh, because I heard back from George, and he, what he told me about the dead band, I didn't realize that that actually shoved everything back three speed steps. In other words, if I put a two sixteen value of, of let's say two, mm -hmm. then that shoves all the speed table in effect to the rear. So he said you're two highest value, you know, number 27, number 28 on the speed tip table, go away. Hmm. He said, they've shoved everything back. And I went, oh, really? I said, well, that would explain that. But, you know, I really didn't care uh, to have maximum speed. So it wasn't a big thing. But when he said that, so I set up the, the test track and stuff down here and was doing it, and I sat there and put different values into 216, 
and then just made a little chart about when I could perceive movement. Mm -hmm. And it varied from instantaneous uh, with no speed, no uh, dead band, up to about speed step seven if I had three in there. Mm-hmm. And number two, if I had two, would come in at about three or four, depending on the locomotive. But uh, that's an excellent uh, speed table you came up with, that progression of values. Excellent. Yeah, it, it's been working really well for me. And, uh, you know, as as I'm going to try out some other ones because – you know, you, you kind of want your road locomotives to behave differently than, than a switching locomotive. And I think you can do that with the Tsunami, too, under different different circumstances. I think you can go into, like, a switching mode or something and half all your values. Um, Right, right, exactly. And then there's also uh, cut your, your speed table speeds in half. So uh, I think you can assign that to different functions. And so there, there's all kinds of neat little things you can do. Say if you have like a SW1500 and an SW1500 has two lives. It, it, it'll roam a yard alone or with another SW1500 or it'll be consisted with uh, with like a Jeep, or in other cases, it'll be consisted into a big lash up of power and hauled over to another switching district. So you, you'll want that SW1500 to, in fact, have two different speed tables, one for doing switching and another one for doing, you know, for being in a consist with the other locomotives. I think there's a way to disable a speed table once it's in a consist or something like that. I need to read a little bit more, but um, there, there, there's all, an awful lot of just operation oriented stuff that you can do with that. And it, it, it'll be, fun, it'll be a lot of fun to play around with that, you know? And we, I think I'm trying to set up something with uh, George for next week. Okay. We could certainly ask him when we talk about uh, speed tables. Right. Uh, I even took some of the, uh, or took your speed table and put it into some of the tsunami ones. Mm-hmm. What I, the next step will be finding some way to get a decent loop of track or two to where I can run these around and do whatever tweaking I need for the locomotives I always have in the same contest. Right, right. Um, the thing about the Tsunami versus the Tsunami 2 is mm-hmm. the resolution on the low end is not as fine as it is on the Tsunami 2. So you might struggle on that side of it okay. a little bit. Okay. But the, the nice thing about the Tsunami 2 just sort of out of the box or out of the bag is it's already kind of set up. It already has those algorithms to match up to the Tsunami 1. Once you go into the speed table, then you leave that sort of safe zone and go into um, a new area where you can kind of really dial in the the very fine motor control that they have now. 
Well, I took the uh, that Cotton Belt 45T uh, is a Tsunami 1. And after mm -hmm. I loaded the uh, speed table in it, just on that short track, it was creeping along. Oh, the low speed performance even on it was outstanding. Mm. Outstanding. So... Now it's yeah. well broken in. Had a number, a lot of running on it, but golly, it was just <laughs> so smooth. So it was, it was great. Well, like I said, what I'll do is I'll upload the that that file to my own website and put a link okay. on to put a link to it on our uh, our Facebook page, and then we can just direct our listeners to go there and try it out for themselves if they like. If they have JMRI. It's that much easier. It's just a matter okay. of just importing it. Go to File Import, find that CSV that you downloaded, pop it into uh, an open programming session, and it'll just automatically write the the speed table for you. The and it uh, won't affect any of your other CVs. That, that's important no, that's, to know. Because that was a question too. That as I was loading the speed table, I wondered if that would have any effect on either the back EMF or the DDE. And of course, on a little track that I had there, I couldn't determine that, but I wouldn't think it would. No, no. It, the CSV file only has the speed table CVs in it. It doesn't have any other CVs in it. Only oh, the no, speed no. table. I meant just operationally. Once oh, operationally. In the decoder. Okay. Right. What if there was any interplay? Another question for George. Yeah. Yeah. No, that you would haven't be noticed it. any, have you? No. No. Well, okay. you know, I honestly, I don't turn on my DDE. I oh. do everything manual notching. Okay. Well, I know that as. If you don't have the DDE set up properly, the motive, the locomotive can act erratic and it can sound erratic. Yeah. Uh, once I got the, the running smoothed out on a couple of them, then the volume cuts and the volume jumps were just, you know, real soft and then real loud, you know, yeah. with no transition. So that. Uh, I found a setting that worked and everything has that setting so that we have a normal sound, not a spastic, right. uh, screaming lunatic thing. Well, okay. I'm kind of a control freak and, you know, yeah. I, I, I how do you just turn prefer DD, How do you turn your DDE off? Well, they, they just come that way out of the box, so I don't, oh. I don't use it. I don't set it up, so therefore I don't need to turn it off. Um, okay. Well, I tell you what, when you think about it, jot down what, you know, look at the uh, CVs there on JMRI uh -huh. and just jot down that 2-503 up to 2-512 and just shoot them off in an email. Because <laughs> <And laughs> those would be the factory defaults. Right. And uh, then I'll, because I thought about doing that. I thought, this is nuts. I don't need this kind of headache when I wasn't, you know, I wasn't happy with the sound or anything. Well, okay. Well, the thing I like is, you know, 
having having my consist all together, having it all advanced consisted together, have my uh, manual notching buttons sent through through to the entire consist because there's just something really satisfying about notching up one notch and all three or four how many ever locomotives fire up at the same time one notch i i just having them all timed out perfectly like that just sounds super realistic to me so that's I, I just like manual notching. Uh, however, I you know I I kind of have it so I have straight to eight, straight to idle, manual notching, and then also what is you the can, straight to idle? Straight to idle is on the one point two firmware. Oh, so I, How I have do you mine update them? mapped. How do you update them? Actually, you can do that. You, you can send them into soundtracks. Oh. And, and the, they will update them for you. Okay, because the work table I have, which is actually a good work table, so I had put a piece of finished plywood with suitable padding under it to protect this uh-huh. work table. And that's where I'd made notes with a Sharpie about, okay, F7 is, you know, I had ESU, then I had Tsunami 2. You know, F7 does this, F6, F5. And I was looking the other day and I went, you know, I threw that table top away. It probably should have written down (laughs) because I hadn't done any programming in a couple months. And I went, oh, shoot, where did I put, you know, uh, the dimmer? Where did I put this, put that? Uh, And it took, I had to go read a bunch of files and then go, okay, here's where it is. (laughs) because I honestly didn't remember. He sent me a a video today of a new speaker that he developed for the Bowser uh, Century Series, the 630, Mm -hmm. 636s. Yeah. Because I changed out the speakers in mine, but I just went to bigger ESU speakers, and it helped, but... When you listen to what he does with this thing, and it's a big enclosure and it fits back in the spot. Oh, golly, that Alco, you can hear that, you know, walla, 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 but it's got depth to it. You can hear those lower tones and stuff. Yeah. So I said, mark that down. That'll be my next purchase. <laughs> so it's going to be an interesting conversation with him. I'm looking uh, forward to it. Oh. He is fanatical. I guess that's why he's successful at engineering professional music and rock albums. Yeah. He's like, classical, they're just addicted to it. And he goes, yeah, he said, he was mentioning he has a uh, isobaric version. And he said it actually has the... Uh, the one speaker behind a wall, and so forth. And he said, I've now got a way that I can, I think I can economically and efficiently produce them. Because I was asking about two-speaker versions. Yeah, Kent, it'll be an interesting conversation. So he's a chessy system guy, so. 
Uh, great. I'm glad to hear that. I, I have a friend, Jason Quinn, that shows up uh, uh, over in St. Louis, and uh, I went over to DCC train, and he, he frequents over there. He's he's a chessy guy too. Really nice guy. I mean, uh, there needs to be more chessy guys. <laughs> I've got. I think I have two SD forty twos in the chessy. You know, the blue, yellow, and vermilion. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that came out in 72 and the first ones started rolling through Huntington, I was mesmerized, you know, by the, just the graphic. Oh and, yeah. Uh, that with the big chessy down the side, cause, uh, mom was still working for chessy system back then. So ACF, we did. I don't know whether it was a one or a 200 car order of center flow covered hoppers and they were yellow with blue trim and that big chessy down the side. Mm -hmm. And so they pulled them to the east end of the yard with a freshly painted GP9 in chessy. They had a crew out there wiping dust off the roof and everything. And they put their photographer up on the sidewalk of the 29th street bridge kind of like a drone view now Mm -hmm. and shot this big massive csx train trailing off into the to the haze down towards the roundhouse and stuff and it was just so cool i went this is ah this is me so i on occasion had painted a number of chessy system uh decal or d diesel not an easy paint job to do because of all the masking but get a more obstruct unobstructed clear look through the screens on the tunnel motor right that that is correct okay you know and lighting and everything else that's kind of associated i mean it, it, to try to do everything that this chassis accomplishes with like a blue box frame plan on a lot of milling to make way for a, a can motor retrofit. You can use a Genesis, you can use a Kato, you can use a Mishima, you could use whatever can motor you want. And granted, you could do that a little bit with the, with the blue box, but here's the caveat. The blue box motor would always sit proud. It would sit high and your drive lines would would be misaligned. This puts it right at a level, dead level um, installation. So there's no possibility. Well, I shouldn't say no. There, it it minimizes the possibility of anything sort of binding on your drive line. That means a freer running motor. That means it draws less current. It's it's just a, a smoother mechanism just by design. Um, it benefits also from a new rear truck, um, and also, you know, the, the gears themselves have been slimmed down in, inside the gearbox, making everything a little bit more silent. So it, it's just like the, this new underframe is a monumental leap forward for just the operation of the locomotive way beyond the blue box. Blue box is like 1970s era style design. You know, it's, yeah, it was in the eighties, but it's still kind of borrowed from those early 
after in locomotives. They growled. They they were kind of bulky, you know, drew a lot of current. <laughs> this this thing is runs like a Swiss watch in comparison, and then that benefits from all the all the nice new uh, electronic components too. One model. Yes. Okay. So going back to the other improved frame, which you could add DCC and sound to, mm-hmm. it is really targeting using that. Okay. Is there anything yeah. that would keep it from accepting a brand new body? Um, like, uh, I'm not sure why I, I really follow you on that brand new body. Well, it, it's made for the brand new bodies. Okay. So it'll, it'll accept the, the, First generation body or the current generation body? Yes, uh, they're they're very minimal. It's a matter of clipping off a clipping off a couple things, a couple reinforcements, some minor kind of modification you you'll have to do to the different incarnations or to screw into. Okay, you got to clip that out. But it's, I mean, you just go at it with a pair of like Xeron cutters or something like that, and they'll. they'll that stuff will just cut right back, right out. It'll, it, oh, the towards I'd say the early two thousands, they put like a boss for the coupler to screw in to do is provide. You got to clip that out, but it's I mean you just go at it with a pair of like Xeron cutters or something like that, and they'll, they'll that stuff will just cut right back, right out. It'll, it, oh, the the modifications are very simple, and anybody can do it. And that that was what we wanted to do was provide this for anybody that has gone through the, um, the extra time of detailing a, a blue box locomotive. And that, that kind of gives them an easy way to upgrade it to, um, DCC and sound too, because a lot of those are, were kind of stuck in DC is just like, I don't want to deal with this thing, you know? So, I have a couple tunnel motors myself that I've detailed up a long time ago. And it's just like, well, how do I, how do I really want to go through adding DCC and sound and lights and all that? They had MV lenses and things like that. But now there's a real compelling reason to pull those out. And it'll be a lot more um, simplified versus like trying to isolate the, the motor and all that stuff. This thing's already done. It has a 21-pin NEM plug for the DCC ready versions or just get it with sound and you're off to the rear. Well, I think it, uh, when I saw the, the announcement, I thought this is a great idea. Okay. And you've explained, uh, some of the nuances I hadn't even considered. So that, that's great. LEDs, sugar cubes. The headlight opening, they replaced the, yeah. I mean, when, when you think of it like that, it's what a deal, <laughs> you know, trying to do all that stuff separately and try to get, and it comes with like, I think eight or six or eight LEDs um, that just fit right into the headlight opening. They replace the the light bulb. So it's just a matter of sliding them right in place of the light bulbs. Ready to run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just drop, drop the locomotive in midair. It'll start building a layout immediately. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Because since the railroad's been torn down and I have nothing really to occupy my time, I've gotten into gardening. Ah. Plants, ground covers, vegetables. Yeah, 
my wife wants to know, where are you going? Well, I'm going up to Perino's to buy something else to plant and cultivate. <laughs> Why don't you work on your trains? No, remember, they're packed away. <laughs> <laughs> so when is the big move? Don't know. Got to sell the house first. So that, that I mean, I guess the bigger question is, are you, are you still thinking northeast then? No, Dallas. Dallas. Okay. Northeast Dallas. <laughs> Roger that. Yes. A lot of, uh, one of our listeners sent me a summary of all the model railroading clubs and stuff in the area just north of Dallas above the 635 Beltway. And, uh, yeah, Plano, Frisco, Richardson, all those places like that. So, uh, it's this area we live in is not a cheap real estate market, but you live right. here because of you can walk the streets at night, you can walk to restaurants, you can walk to dry cleaning, drugstore, groceries, whatever. Right. And we even have police patrolling on horseback. And I'm, I don't know, an eighth of a mile off the edge of. Uh, the west edge of City Park. So it's just a great place to live, to bike. There's gyms. So anyway, I told my wife, I said, you know, I understand your motivation for wanting to move to Dallas. I said, but the other thing is, it's probably an hour's flight from here. So if you want to go see the our youngest daughter and granddaughter, hop a plane. <laughs> Yeah. And she goes, well, what will you do with your railroad? I said, I'll rebuild it. Yeah. You know, I'll improve upon it. Don't worry about it. But So does this mean that a move to Dallas yields a little bit larger train room? Oh, babe, the, uh, the ground rules were there will be at least a 25 by 20 train room either <laughs> over the garage or in this house. And even our daughter, Jordan, who's been sending us real estate, you know, leads, she said, and dad, check the second floor. There is your train room. So it's kind of, you know, the, my youngest is, she's on board for the, for the train room. <laughs> so well, that's great. Yeah. And uh, so we'll, you know, we will see, but. I am, so I went down to a neighbor today. He's the ex-NFL football player and uh, killed the open house time. And uh, so came back up and, you know, he goes, well, you don't seem too anxious to sell. And I said, you know, Lord sells it, he sells it. You know, then we'll move. I said, otherwise, I'm not losing sleep. I'm enjoying it. Yes. And actually over in, I can hear in the morning, because especially now it's summer with all the humidity, I can hear on the main line westbound uh, the train signaling in the block, you know, because they'll stop, wait for clear signal and stuff. And, you know, you can hear the uh, Jeevos ramp up. So even more so of that will be available in Texas. So we shall yes. see. Now, next month, 
we're going to have a guest on here from uh, Scales Sound Systems, J.T. Bowers. Chris put me on to this, and I've already ordered and received my first order of engineered speakers. Now, Chris, you've already installed a couple, right? Yes. So this guy is a sound engineer, a recording sound engineer. I'll let him explain it more next month when we talk to him. But so he's not just buying a ready available enclosure and putting somebody's speaker in it. He is taking these speakers and taking them into the sound room and analyzing the sound files out of the decoder and building enclosures that leverage that sound. And the basis is sugar cubes, typically a 13 by 18. Right. So Chris put me on to that. And so I contacted the guy. I had a question or two, Chris. And mm -hmm. then he and I, he said, he said, let me email you an answer. We started this conversation that's probably about 20 emails long now. Right. And then I got my first ones. I'm going to test them tomorrow. And he's got a dual speaker system. Mm -hmm. He did it as a custom, and now he's figured out how he could make it to sell. And I've heard the recordings. I'm going, holy cow. Now, they're not inexpensive, but I tell you what, the sound that they put out, and I'm just going by listening with good headphones to his YouTube videos, very, very quality sound coming out of these speakers. That's that's what I thought, too. When I first listened to the YouTube videos, and we can put up, along with those Dropbox files, I can also post a link to as YouTube, so our listeners can go out and check this out for themselves. Uh, it's He makes specific enclosures for a specific installation. So Yes. Now, he's got... I bought four of the 28 millimeters. One version is in a round enclosure. Right. Like on my thinking was in my E-units, where I now have some uh, decent speakers in there, but I'm going to test them and see if this raises the bar. And I've got to trim the frame on some... Uh, Stewart's that I rebodied with Intermountain uh, detail kits and bodies. They're F units, and this will allow me to cut the frame down, and I'm going to try a couple in there. And then uh, he has a video of a Bowser unit, and Bowsers, like River Rossi, typically come with the SU. Uh, the Bowser, mm -hmm. I think, comes with two 16 by something speakers in the back and I've upgraded them, but he makes uh, an incredible looking speaker there. So I'm going to beta test one of those. So it should be a very enjoyable conversation 
he lives in Marion, Ohio. So he's just a little bit mm-hmm. north of Columbus and belongs to a club, all that. So it's amazing. But he is fervently dedicated to engineering the best sound possible. So, I mean, the hobby benefits when you get guys with that kind of passion. So by then I will have tested my units and we could talk about that. We'll interview, interview him uh, because he's cutting it or engineering an album for some rock group. Yeah. And, you know, I thought, uh, Jim, about Professor Kleisler. You know, they're kindred spirits. Because that's what uh, the professor does. So we'll see. Oh, the sound design, right. Yeah. Yeah. I know the professor has helped me out with a lot of suggestions on his, uh, on frequencies and stuff when I was tuning speakers. So So uh, did you, did you speak to the professor by voice or did you speak to him through texting? No, no. When the professor gave me the recommendations, it was through one of the forums. Okay. I had posted uh, on there, I think I put a video and the professor, you know, posted back with photos of the, of the frequencies and stuff he deducted just for my video. And he made suggestions of what to do. And I mean, he was just dead nuts on. These speakers Hmm. came to life. I don't doubt it. He's very good at what he does. Oh, yes, he is. So I'm thinking that uh, Mr. JT is going to be a kindred spirit there. So should be an interesting uh, program mid-July. Uh, and of course, he and I shared Buckeye fever since my wife and I lived, at, uh, lived in Ohio for a number of years and used to watch Big Ten football with the, uh, the Buckeyes. So should be good. Now, I had a question the other day, Jim. Okay. A friend of mine out in Phoenix, he was asking me about a question on what speakers he might specify when he had his decoder, sound decoders. I used to do a bunch of them with him, and I even would have him over to the house. And I, I said, here, let me walk you through this decoder installation, these speakers putting LED lights in, and then you can, you know, gain the knowledge to do it yourself. And so he had asked me about something, and I said, well, look, let me walk you through doing it. We've, we've gone down this road before. I don't want to do it. <laughs> I want somebody to do it for me. And I said, okay, that's, that's your choice. So he was asking about a, I forget, some bottle or body, some shell that wasn't available. And he goes, do you think somebody could uh, 3D print a detailed version of this shell in HO? I don't want, I don't know everything that's involved, but I said, I feel very confident that if you had that body scanned or otherwise converted to a, you know, a digital file that the uh, printer could read, 
I said, they probably could. I said, let me, let me ask Jim about this when we talk on Sunday. And I said, what is your point, though? He said, wonder if we could develop we being that, you know, universal we, not meaning he and I, could develop locomotive kits. And I went, oh, you mean like the next iteration of Blue Box? He said, yeah, where you'd have a frame, you'd buy a drivetrain, you'd buy a shell. And I said, well, let me just bounce first the body off of Jim. Because I said, I have, Jim does a lot of, you know, craftsman work in 3D printing. Mm -hmm. And so doing a shell, Jim, how complicated would that be? Um, well, it's takes, it would take a while to draw it. Okay. And it would take, um, I mean, if you had a good 3d scanner, that would obviously be better, but I mean, it, it would just take time. Okay. And if you want somebody to do it, I mean, if like, if you wanted me to do it, um, it probably would cost you more than you want to pay. Okay. I mean, so, I mean, if you want to, uh, you know, you just, you would just have to, you can do one of two things. You can, you know, go out there and spend the, what, what will happen is you will go out and you can't go off drawings. You can, but the problem with drawings is they can get you the overall lengths and stuff like that, but it's hard to do. Hard to figure out how things relate to one another in 3D. Okay. So you need to take a lot of photographs. You need to measure everything. And whenever you do that, you're not going to measure something that you need. And so you end up having to go back. And hopefully you can remember what you need <laughs> when you go back. And you get the permission to go. You know, it, that, it's just a, it's a more convoluted process. For me, I mean, because I don't do it for a living, but it's a more convoluted process than is probably readily apparent unless okay. you work there or have easy uh, access and multiple times and then draw it and then make sure everything works for the 3D printer. Okay. And then... You probably want to get it done by a good 3D printer, not by one of the services. And when I say services, I mean the general services that you would use, like Shapeway, Sculptio, iMaterialize. You wouldn't want to use one of those. You'd want to use a a rapid prototype, which is going to be significantly more money as well. Because the machine they use is a lot more money. So the short answer is yes, it can be done. The long answer is you probably don't want to pay for it. Because of the time. The time. Because of the time. And, and if you want it done well, um, if you don't know 3D design, you're going to have to learn it. And that's going to take a year or two before you're good enough to do something like this well and, okay. not, have it, and not have it spit back at you. So... You know, you're looking at hundreds to thousands of dollars to design it. And then, you know, however much money it costs to print it. 
So yes, it, it, yes, it's possible, but it, it wouldn't be cheap unless you're doing it yourself and you know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, then that's fine. But what will happen is if you try to do this as your first project, it's going to take you way longer than it should, and you're going to do it wrong. And when I say do it wrong, I mean the file you're going to send to the 3D printing service is not going to be right. It's going to look okay. You will draw it, and it will look probably look okay to your eye, but when they try to print it, it won't work. How do I know this? Probably you have experienced it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> spent, spent hours and hours, and I think I spent two, three weeks, maybe more, learning SketchUp as I went, and I was drawing something not overly complicated. I didn't think it was complicated, and it's still not right. Years later, still not right. Um, I could redraw it in SolidWorks, and it would be okay, and it would probably take me a day. But, you know, I don't have all the measurements, and it's, it's kind of hard to... It was drawn in, in an old version of SketchUp, so I don't know whether I could actually get the file and open it and get all the measurements out of it. So okay. It's one of these projects I'd like to do. So, yes, it's possible, but I... I We'll, we'll just leave it at that. Yes, it's possible. Well, and to support that, back in 2010, when Joe and I were talking about the podcast at the you know, fair with trains, Bob had some of his office space sublet out to an architect. And this architect's specialty was doing the three-dimensional models of design, especially commercial designs. So one of the extra rooms was taken up by a 3D printer. I mean, it was enormous. Mm -hmm. And he had a scanner. So Bob gave him an Intermountain wooden boxcar. And the guy scanned it and did a print. Now, even the grab irons were on there, three-dimensional mm -hmm. standoff grab irons, and uh, it was beautiful. And mm -hmm. Bob just goes, you don't want to know how much this would cost. So that kind of like supports what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, if you want, if you want it, yeah, if you want it done right, yeah, you can get it, you can get it done. I mean, you, you have to determine what your time is worth. What your time, you know, how much you want to pay yourself for your time, and you're going to probably bang your head against the wall unless you know how to do it already. If you know how to do it already, it's not as big of a deal. But, in for instance, I would love to do an O scale model of an RS18U. Is that like the box car that Chris is going to make? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, but here, here's a. I, I'm not going to tell you with whom I spoke. Okay. okay. Um, but I spoke with somebody at a particular company, and I think I may have mentioned this in previous podcasts. And he said, yeah, I said, here, here are photographs of my 3D model. And now bear in mind the models, I have complete 3D models. I can print the car, could print the car if I wanted to have it printed, totally. Yeah. May not be under frame, but I have everything else done. Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. I... And he said, well, just send us, send us the 3D models and we'll see if we want to do it. 
and then if we decide we'll do the project, we'll we'll talk about compensation. Do you see anything wrong with that statement? Right. I see a lot of things wrong with that statement. Yeah. Uh-huh. There ain't no way <laughs> I'm going to give you these 3D models, and then you decide to do it, and then say, yeah, well, we'll give you 150 bucks. Yeah, no. It's, it's not that I don't trust you, but no. Thank you. I really want it done, but I don't want it done that badly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that that's kind of uh, I'm not it, sure how how to how to how to put it, but it it seems to expose you to an awful lot of risk personally, Jim. Well, it, no, what it, is it unnecessary. <laughs> well, it doesn't expose me to any risk. It just means that the likelihood of me being paid for it is remote. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, the the risk the risk would be you lose control of your intellectual property because yes. you put all that time into right. it. Yep, and you would never be able to go to someone else with it. Nope. Yep, that is the risk. And okay. Yes, you are right. Um, I I know that that this is kind of going on a tangent here, but as, as far as you are concerned, mm-hmm. what you should probably do is put together a detail of that project and say this is this is the file you are building this is a sample of the file that 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 you are purchasing so if there's a part of it like a stirrup or like a brake cylinder or a brake wheel that you know gets ripped off it's not a total loss of the project right yeah you know You know, and then I, they can understand that, okay, you're getting this, this, and this. This is a sample. You can run the, through your your people to see if this will work for you and, you know, and have a firm idea of, you know, what you want to get out of it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, or you know, you give them photographs of all the models and, and then here, then, are, here are a couple samples. Right, exactly. Um, of very of very small parts that are very inconsequential, and it's like, pfft. yeah, yeah, uh, um, and have a firm idea of what it's worth. Because oh, I, I have a firm idea of what it's worth. Uh, okay, good. Because oftentimes a, a company will say, "Yeah, okay, it's a donation," you know. So we'll give you as many how how many ever models that. We'll give you like ten models that of this thing when it's when it's all done. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to them, that that's that's what they have in their mind. But quite cool. honestly, stick with the firm number because that'll show the quality of the product you have mm-hmm. and that you're serious. Oh yeah. And, and it's not just uh, just be treated like a hobbyist that you want to be this is a business transaction not yeah, this, a, hobby this is a business transaction the other thing is you know you buy these models if there's any issues with them i'll fix it yeah you know you know at the price i'm thinking you know it's like obviously if there's any issues or you need me to tweak something i will happily do that but you know there, there's another situation where i'm working with another gentleman and he basically has the model. He has the 3D model already, but he mm-hmm. kind of wants my help to tweak some things and some, you know, you know, what's the what's the market like? And, you know, so I, you know, if it takes me an hour, maybe tweaking a couple of things and making a, um, 
you know, making a file up. I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just redrawing on something real quick. I have the existing measurements. You know, I haven't gone out and done field work and, you know, seen how this relates to that and, and drawn. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I haven't done all that. So it's like, ah, you know, if it means it gets done, and in that case, sure. And the other thing, he didn't ask me for it. He's like, I said, here, here, I'll just give this to you. Mm-hmm. And in, in that case, um, since he's already done all the work, it's like, all right, well, I'll, I'll give you all this. I'll give you the help for like three or four of these boxcars when they're done. I'm fine with that. In this other case, the amount of work that I've done, and I, it just struck me as like, yeah, no, I'm good. I didn't respond to his email. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the email and I'm like, nope. And maybe he's listening to this. I don't know. <laughs> well. Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. But, I mean, you probably have some concept of how much these things cost to get designed in China. Well, it, it, so, this is, it, it's all relative to time, you know. Yeah. Certain price. Time is the value. I mean, yeah. if you're trying to like scale something to market and you want to try to beat everybody else to it, having something that someone's already researched and developed like what you have done mm-hmm. is of man- monumental worth if, if that is the goal. If you're trying to right. scale something to, to hit the market in less than three years, you know, yeah. to do all the research and development and all that stuff. It takes years to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, it, And that's worth something. That's worth a lot. Uh, so, in my in my opinion, it's worth thousands of dollars. In my opinion, I now, I, I I would tend to agree. I mean, okay. you, well, you're going to have to pay if you want a project to be done in yeah. whatever scale. It, yeah. it takes thousands of man hours. Mm-hmm. No joke, thousands of man hours. It'll take like a couple people to do all the R and D. To go out to to travel. Yep. So you got to go to the location of the prototype. You got to work out all the uh, the legal. Yeah, the permissions. Uh, you got to have at least one person hold the camera and two people hold the measuring tape in in, in a lot of instances. Um, so that's multiple person traveling. Yep. That's not cheap in itself. So that oh. that's we're already talking thousands of dollars. Uh, in time and travel yep. expense. And, and then to actually come back and regurgitate all those photographs and measurements and everything into a three-dimensional model, that takes hundreds of hours. Hundreds of hours, and you have to know what you're doing and what you're looking at. Right. And, and there's just some things that can't be reproduced in a certain size. Correct. Just that is the limitations of the tool. So you got to be under, so you got to yeah. understand that. Yep. Then there's material limitations. You know, we're talking thinness of things, so you got to understand the limitations of working right. with etch metal and things like that. So, yep, I, mean, there's I, things I, you I can, think there's can, things you can print and there's things you can't. And right, right. Knowing knowing those things saves you a week to a month of time if you already know it. Well, a, a, a week a week and a month of time in a production schedule is costs a lot oh yeah because then when things are in production and things don't fit right and you have a line of 30 people trying to put this thing together Uh 
you're multiplying everything by 30, <laughs> you know, as far as like losses in time and stuff. So, yeah. well, one of the things I suggested to my friend is I went, well, you've got to understand the demographic this is going to appeal to. I said, you're looking for somebody. Let's just take this out to the ultimate and say, yeah, so we're going to make uh, either a injected, molded, uh, plastic, suitable resin, maybe a Delrin or whatever, that can be the frame. Then you're going to do whatever to make a shell. And are you going to supply motor and drivetrain? Or is this going to be one where the buyer loves doing this, so he's going to buy trucks and motor and drivetrain from someplace else and kit bash it? I said, you know, this is the guy who might go buy one of Jimmy Simmons's kits, uh, but you're not going to get the guy who's looking for a Walther Scene Masters. Yeah, because there's just totally different mindset yeah. on how they want to do the modeling. So your market demand has to be factored with everything that you've just been talking about with Chris, you know, the hard start or startup costs, the tooling development work and stuff, and you start amortizing that at a desirable profit margin to get you a return. And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe there's an easy way to get rich, an easier way to get rich than oh, yeah. doing a uh, modified blue box kit. Yeah, the problem, the problem with the model railroad market is this, the market just isn't big. And the people in the market are cheap. No yeah. offense. We all are. What? I mean, cheap. Cheap? Yeah. I mean, okay. it's, it's just they're a reality. They're cost conscious. Let's say they're yeah. cost okay. conscious. Okay, cost conscious. Are very cost conscious. And there's many people in the hobby that believes that because it's a hobby, everybody should be doing it for free. And, you know, people got to eat. And they'll say, well, this is a hobby. You should do it for the good of the hobby. And it's like, well... Okay. And well, which is okay. I mean, that's okay. It is a hobby and I totally understand that. But I but I'm also not gonna criticize anybody that feels they should Yes, you know, they, they can be very um I mean the stories from custom kit manufacturers where somebody will say, How much will it cost for you to do this? How much will it cost for you to do a laser cut laser cut copy of my father's house in this town? Five hundred dollars. Oh my goodness, that's ridiculous. I can't believe that you would charge that money. Oh, what's that under your arm? Oh, it's a $2,000 brass big boy. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, and you can get another one of those anytime you want, but you can't get another you can't get another copy of your father's house from 1939. Right. But you know, so it's it's the it's the mindset. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's it's people like what they like. And they want to put a particular value on the things that they really like, and it can be difficult in this hobby to make a to make a profit. That's all. That's what I'm trying to get at. Is it can be hard to make money because you know you do want to help people out, but you also have to eat. Well, this kind of a whole reminds me of like when Alps printers first came out, that everybody swore up and down that there would be no need for any printed decals anymore. Because we just print our own, right? Right. 
Well, how well did that work out? <laughs> yeah, not really. Because people completely underestimate the value of intellectual property and mm-hmm. the, the ability to draw and design it so you can actually hit the print button and a decal pop out. I think it's there's a just a natural ingrained sort of oversimplification that oh I got this out so I can just hit a print button and out a decal will pop out. <laughs> well, there it's sorta. It's, yeah, it, 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 sorta. if you have the art file on hand, oh what's that? You know. <laughs> well, you mean I have to do some work? <laughs> and, and and thus is the same thing with three D printing. You know, it's the yeah. the expertise to that that goes into designing everything so you can hit that that print button on the 3d print butter uh, butter that 3d printer and have something pop out you know have a part right. pop out so and not pop apart while it's popping out right right and that that happens more often than not correct having my own 3d printer and not having too many successful parts come out of it Yes, it can be yeah. tricky. But some of the stuff you've done, Jim, that uh, that you've posted up on the podcast page, I mean, it's just excellent work. But it's not like it, you just snapped your fingers and it came about. There was a lot of work and research and trial and error behind your successes. Yeah, uh, I mean, for instance, the plows. Yeah, the plow, which I got done by Sculptio, and I'm very pleased with the quality of their work. Um, the plow was that was all of a sudden it was an aha moment. And I think I explained this in the last podcast, but it was an aha moment when I realized, oh, wait a minute, this isn't. It's not curved along its uh, height; it's curved along its length. And so, once I figured that out, it was like, oh, I all I have to do is this zip, and it was done. But that was like mulling on it for a year or two. I mean, it was like ridiculously how long I mulled on it before I had suddenly had the, that, you know, that bright idea. So I had the skill to do it. I just didn't know how to go about it. And you need to be able to look at things and understand, oh, this is how you make it. Because some things aren't, you know, I said, oh, that, oh, you just draw it. Well, yeah, <laughs> but you got to know how. You have to know how to do it because unless it's a box, once it goes much beyond a box, it yeah. gets kind of complicated. But even then, you know, I could probably draw, and the thing that I was talking about before, which I spent weeks on drawing in, in SketchUp and was never really right and still isn't right, and people keep ordering it, which I always find fascinating, but is that I could probably draw it now in a day or two. It's vaguely complicated, so a lot of the things it's it's an electrical box. Um, so if you want to do a good electrical box and have it look like an electrical box, it will take you some time to do it. But it wouldn't take me weeks; it would take me a day or two. Now, but SolidWorks is a much more robust product anyway, and SolidWorks makes what you need for three D printing easier than SketchUp does. So. You know, once you learn how to do it in SketchUp, it isn't too bad. But, you know, there's a lot of things that it's like just isn't really made to do that. So you're because, 
you know, most pe- most modelers are running on a budget and are cost conscious. They will use a free product that wasn't really designed to do what they want to do, and then they get frustrated. So then you end up having to pay somebody, you know, for this type of thing, you know, for this type of thing, you really should be paying somebody who has the product that's designed to do what you want to do. And again, there's a cost. You know, this SolidWorks is not a inexpensive product, but it's a wonderful tool. You know, you can't expect cabinet maker type furniture from somebody that's just got a skill saw and a, and a file. You know, you, right. you go you go to a cabinet maker shop and you expect to spend more money at the cabinet maker because he's going to make you custom furniture and he's going to have it done in a day or a week or however long it takes instead of you taking three weeks in your in your garage and not having everything be square. Huh. Well, that would explain why the hutch doors don't fit. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think you've uh, uncovered the weakness in my plan, Jim. Uh-huh. Oops. Yeah. So now I've got two of you that are going to come come and knock me off because I figured out your secrets. Yes. Now, are you making progress on your railroad? Who, me? Yeah. No. Why? Because I've been writing an article for MRH. On? One of my projects. Which is? A secret. <laughs> I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Okay, all right, yes. Um, I'll just wait and be surprised. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll wait and be surprised. Okay. Uh, but, it, 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 yeah, it took me a lot longer. But as I was telling Chris, it's, it's let's just say it's rather in-depth. <laughs> okay. It's, 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 it's 8,520 words and 60 photographs. Wow, that's enormous. Yeah, so and like 30-something pages. So I'm sure it will get cut down or it will go across two, two issues. I was going to say, maybe a multi-episode thing. Just as I got into it, there was a, there was a lot that – there was quite the story that could be told with it. And yeah. so I told the story. I just let it rip. And, you know, he may come back and say, oh, well, you're going to need to do X, Y, and Z. And I'd go, okay. Okay. But, um, yep, submitted it to him. And you – he said he will. They'll be taking a look at it on sometime after Friday because they've got the deadline on Thursday. So cool. Yep. Well, I uh, speaking of articles, I had just posted uh, a new blog yesterday uh, at the MRH forum. Actually, yeah, on the forums under Duck Dogger, and I had started it probably oh th- three months ago. And then the moving just interrupted of all the the work I was doing. And so I thought, okay, it's time to get this thing up. Remember, what was it, a month before last or whatever, we ordered or interviewed uh, Scott at KV Models. And I had bought some of his windshield wiper, etched metal parts and stuff like that for some E-units. And I ran across his... Uh, CF7 uh, shutters and grills. And so I I bought them because I've got these three CF7s. So I started doing the body modification. And as I lay out in this blog entry, 
it it just grows exponentially. It's just like Jim's article takes off. Next thing you know, it's it's sixty photos and a whole bunch of of words. So finally got it up. Now this is the interesting part. So before I started cutting, and I detail how I modified the bodies, the tools I used, and everything to get these uh, grills and uh, covers in, I thought, well, the, I'm going to have to repaint, so I'm just going to strip the paint. So I got some scale coat, you know, the green uh, plastic compatible stripper they sell. And so I've got three different vintages of CF7s, Atherton CF7s. And one of them, or two of them are yellow, yellow bonnets and the other's pinstripe. Mm-hmm. Each one of them reacted to the stripper differently. Oh, boy. One of the yellow bonnets just in no time was down to pretty much bare plastic. Not a problem. Didn't That's what I counted on. The pinstripe made me think of Jim's uh, Southern Pacific weathering posting, you know, with the weather gray. <laughs> this blue uniformly just went to like it had been setting in the Arizona sun for like 30 years. <laughs> and then the the last unit, which was a Topeka cab, you know, once I took off all the hood details and pulled out the LEDs and stuff, it was somewhere in between. The yellow got a nice little faded dullness to it, and the blue was not quite as bad. So I went, well, crap. Yeah, I want you to be all the same. So after I went through all this, getting those uh, etched metal parts in there, positioned, secured, I thought, okay, let me get some true color Santa Fe blue. I'm going to mask off here, mask off there, and just airbrush it on. Uh, Micromark makes these masking pins, and it's like a... It reminds me of the the pin that you can buy from, uh, oh, the scenic company that has the track paint in a pin form. So it's it's an affair like that, but it puts out a rubbery a liquid that dries to like a rubberized consistency, and so I can mm. trace around the yellow warb on it, and it cleaned off just the way they said you rub it. It came right out of all that finely etched uh, grill material, and it blocked the paint. But then when I got done, there was such a contrast in the blues. I went, well, crap. This just looked like it went to the shop and somebody just painted the roof. <laughs> so anyway, I wrapped up the uh, the article or the blog and posted it, but so I've still got to do work on these bodies. I'm going, you know, I may just prime everything and shoot it blue. And uh, I've already got the micro scale yellow bonnet uh, decals and stuff. But it was so interesting, Chris, because it's all atherin paint. 
just different vintages that it reacted so differently to the scale coat stripper. Yeah. So you used a scale coat stripper. On yes, that one. the green, the pale green, the plastic compatible, and put it in a pan, let it soak, toothbrush it, let it soak, toothbrush it. Now they had different degrees of weathering on it, but okay. I compensated for that because I knew I was going to have to go through the dull coat and the, uh, you know, with the attendant India ink washes and stuff. But once it got down to the base paint and I put it in for the next layer, nothing came off. And I went, well, crap, <laughs> that's <laughs> not the result I wanted. So, right. Uh, I don't know of anybody else who makes a safe plastic compatible stripper. Uh, used to be chameleon. I've used that, but I, I have no idea where you can buy chameleon. I, you know, I did a Google search and it shows a couple stores that are now no longer yeah. with the, the hobby community. So, Back to square one, and it'd be a good one if anybody out there knows of a source for buying chameleon. Yeah, put it on our website. Please, please share that because that was my my favorite. <laughs> that, I agree, it was great paint stripper. So it's either that, or I'm just going to overspray everything and get it because the finished model with the uh, the louvers, and I positioned my louvers open so I could see through. And then when you put the grill over, oh, it was worth the work. The depth that it adds to the frame is just really cool. Now I've got to, had to change out the speakers because the speakers I had in there were up in the rear of the shell. And I can't do that now or I've just, you know, negated all this work for the see-through look. But I've got uh, some close coupled three unit sugar cubes that I can slide up in there that will work and still allow to be see-through and obviously now with these grills in place there's a lot of you know outlets for the sound to escape so yeah, yeah. It's, uh, KV that's a very nice uh, product so go read the blog on that yeah. Scott's done some real good work yeah, looking forward to checking that out. I, I, I have it up right now. I'll, I'll read it after the, the podcast. Okay. The uh, I forgot. I spent all this time putting it up. And what you should do when you post a blog or even a, uh, especially a blog, but a lengthy article, is put the first paragraph or two, post it, and then do uh, a comment. And then put the balance of it. That way you don't, every page change, have to sit there through 3,000 words. And I forgot to do that yesterday. So it took me 10 minutes <laughs> to go in there and figure out how to cut and paste this so I could, you know, just do a paragraph or two and then put my own uh, thing into it so that it would repeat properly. But, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's amazing, I tell you. So, 
as we go, and so I brought this up at dinner the other night, and you know, my wife goes, well, what are you going to do after you can't plant any more plants in the yard since you can't do model railroading? She said, and you're already going to the gym or doing 12-mile bike rides every day. So I went, well, if we decide we're not going to sell because, you know, for whatever reason, I said, then the railroad's going back up. Well, I said, see to that, we'll put you live a second. In New Orleans. You don't live in New Orleans, right? Yeah. But, and there's no basements here. But you could just get a shrimping boat. You get a shrimping boat, yeah. A shrimping boat. <laughs> yeah. Put it in the bottom of a shrimp boat. So I said, look, we can put a second story over the garage. And I said, we can go up this far by building code. And because it's inhabitable space. And she's just looking at me, what does that cost? And I said, well, obviously, we'll get an estimate. She said, what if we go rent a space for you? And I said, I said, do what? She says, let's go rent a space for you. I said, well, okay, the way that would work is you find a little place that's convenient and you've got a store or a, some kind of two-story building that they've got extra space that they want to just capture income cheap and it's got to be air conditioning and heated and secure i said that would work as long as it's convenient to the to where we live i said but otherwise i'll put it back in the same bedroom and just modify the track plan i learned a lot the first go round, and i think i can make it more interesting plus then it's just upstairs so we shall see. <laughs> yeah, she thought she was going to save money by me not buying railroad stuff. I showed the fallacy of that with all the plants I've bought to, to uh, put in the ground. So, hey, it keeps me off the streets. What can I say? <laughs> or does it? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So it's... But one thing about it, there's a lot more readily accessible safe railroading over in texas than than here now this is interesting what pam had to do a transplant conference up in seattle so i went with her so while she was at the meetings and giving her presentation you know i just stayed back in a hotel room we were right downtown seattle and when that was done we went about 80 miles north to this great little town called Bellingham. Pam has a cousin, lives in Bellingham. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have the Pacific Ocean coming in there, and you've got the islands and all this. You know, we did yep. the, uh, the whale sighting cruise and all that stuff. And so her cousin, they bought this house, and it was built in 1937. This whole street is houses from the late 1800s to some of the newest stuff is in the, you know, the 50s, maybe early 60s. Because people put this home built such and such a date, and you can see. So they bought this house because it overlooks the bay, and they did a lot of changes, but they maintained the integrity of that 
1937 architecture and stuff. And he, he pulled out an Adirondack chair at the end of his lot so I could sit there and watch trains. Hmm. I said, you know, I said, what makes this property valuable to me is not the harbor, not the sound and the islands, and I can see the Alaskan ferry come in. It's the fact that this is former Great Northern Main Line, and there's 15 BNSF and Amtrak trains go by here every day. I said, that's the value of the property. And so because just like the uh, on the coastline coming out of L.A. up to Seattle, where it runs across the, the coast there, these lines go right across, right around the harbor there in state of Washington on the way up to uh, Vancouver in B.C. And he says, well, here's how you can tell the train's coming because there's a block signal about two houses up, but it's, you know, it's dark except on approach. But when they're going north on the other side of the harbor, which I can see, you can see with the naked eye and see very clear with binoculars. When they make that curve, they start going through the, the, the town. And so even though they're on the harbor side, there must be 25 grade crossings. So they're always blowing the grade crossings. And it tells you, oh, I've got a northbound train. i got time for another cup of coffee and to get out there. And then about a mile away is the southbound. And so we'd be in a conversation, I'd hear the horns, and I'd go, excuse me, I'll be right back. <laughs> I'd grab the camera and stuff and walk out the back. And uh, they call them the Q-tips, the, uh, those Talgo-type trains with the F, I guess it's an F-59PH on either end. And it's yeah. got the cars with the transition uh, things on it, and it's in the white and the green. So there's Sounder. a couple, yeah, couple of those every day. And so anyway, the next time we go up, we're going to fly to L.A., uh, probably going to John Wayne Airport because there's an Amtrak station there and you avoid all the clutter of L.A. And take the coastline up and then in Seattle switch over to the train that, you know, the uh, Cascade that runs up because it stops in this beautiful station right by the harbor in Bellingham. Just get some sleeper rooms, go up there. It's like a, I don't know, day and a half, but who cares? You take a book, you read. They've got uh, all this stuff. So, Jimmy, how about the uh, guy with Dead Rail? I haven't talked to him yet. I've been kind of busy writing an article. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize how much work that was going to be. And I work 12 hours a day, Paul. I hate to break I don't know. Thing. I'm retired. I don't experience oh, those right. intrusions into my life. <laughs> right. Of course, right. Because <laughs> uh-huh. what, what we didn't talk about, and I know he's not here, but is uh, Monster Motor Works. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy's Jimmy uh, shutting down. He's yeah. going on to bigger and better things. Yeah, greener pastures. He uh, and Craig, I tell you, yeah, McMartin's no longer the business. So, yeah, making more money probably. 
I've uh, I've used McMartin's metal business cards. They are very, very upscale looking. Oh yeah, feeling they are very credible, and they're not that expensive. I was surprised on the first batch I bought, and uh, we will. I'll be back in touch, and we'll talk further. All right, guys. Okie doke. Cheers. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you.